0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, November 15th, 2023. And this is our 372nd episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an outstanding chef and fellow podcaster who is based in Philadelphia, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start with my PR tip, Then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to live every day as if it's your last. Let's appreciate life's precious moments and do what makes us happy on a daily basis. Let's not sweat the small stuff or obsess about trivial things, but take in all the good and make the most of every opportunity. Our time here is limited, and no one lives forever, so let's focus on what matters most to us and live every day to its fullest. Life is what we make of it, so let's make it our best. That's my tip today. Love that. Awesome. I'm so uh, glad. Uh, um, yeah, I thought it was a good one to, to kick off this show with, and one I have, believe it or not, not used before. So... Um, Thank you. Um, I'm so excited to have my guest joining me, who is Eli Culp. And he is the chef and partner of High Street Hospitality Group and host of the Chef Radio podcast, as well as the co-host of Delicious City Philly podcast.
2: That's it.
1: Eli's accolades include Food and Wine Best New Chef 2014, James Beard Finalist 2016, and Bon Appetit's number two best new restaurant in America. A graduate from the Culinary Institute of America in 2005, Eli worked for notable New York City restaurants including Casa Lever, Del Posto, and Teresi Italian Specialties. He was overseeing the kitchens at Fork, A Kitchen and A Bar, and High Street on Market, as well as expansion to New York City, when his path greatly changed in 2015, as he was involved in a tragic incident while commuting between Philadelphia and New York City. It was an Amtrak accident where he endured a spinal cord injury. Despite his ability to no longer cook, he has stayed very involved in the kitchen in various ways with his award-winning restaurant group. And he's thriving with his podcasts and much more. And we're going to hear all about it today. So, Eli, hi. Welcome to the show. Hey, Sherry.
2: Great to see you. Uh, glad to be here and uh, excited to talk.
1: Yeah, me too. I mean, um, I, I'm i very, very excited to chat with you. And I always like to go back with my guests and, and find out how they got into this crazy world mm-hmm. we are in, in the hospitality industry. So I saw also, uh, I mean, my bio or write-up um, was a short one on on you, but I saw that you grew up in a place where there were no restaurants.
2: Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> Is that yeah, true? Exactly. So
1: <laughs> so take us all back. All right,
2: going way back <laughs> here. So uh, my parents were, I'd say, traveling hippies in a Volkswagen bus roaming around Uh, and they found this property at the end of an old dusty road outside of a town called Mossy Rock, Washington. So the Pacific Northwest of Washington State. And outside of that town of 500 people, we live about seven miles out, there's a single wide trailer on a property that had a well, and they bought that, and that's where I grew up. So the uh, the town that I grew up in, Mossy Rock, only had a tavern. You could get a burger there, or they had this little burger spot where you get like a burger and a shake. That was it. A tiny, tiny little spot. So, you know, the town itself was very sleepy. It woke up in the summer. It was a big recreational area. So you had a lot of people come to the town. And how I got into it was a intrepid lady, named Mary Bertram. If she never came to that town, I wouldn't be a chef. I guarantee that. But she did. And just like a lot of chefs, At the age of about 14, my dad was like, well, if you want that dirt bike you keep talking about, you better get a job. And that was my thing, riding dirt bikes and motocross and all that. So I did and started cooking, well, first just bussing and washing dishes and then slowly found my way into the kitchen and and never left. So, yeah.
1: And when did you decide to go to the CIA? Did you look at other culinary schools or were you just like, that's where I wanted to go? You know, I
2: had a really roundabout way to find myself in the top kitchens uh, in New York. So at 1996, I graduated. I spent four years in Portland, Oregon. I went down to a school down there, small culinary, like vocational school. Kind of got me in the door of, I did some fine dining at the Hilton Hotel there at at their restaurant on top. And then I took a job just for the money, really, as a, quote, unquote, sous chef at an Irish pub in Portland, Oregon. Now, I spent a couple of years there, and then they expanded north to Seattle. They told me, hey, you want to be the chef or a.k.a. kitchen manager? I was only 21 years old, so I had no business running it. However, you know, I was a hard worker. I, you know, I always showed up, worked as hard as the next guy next to me. So they gave me the chance. And so I spent the next, I would say, four four and a half years, almost five years in Seattle. Well, I had been turned on to fine dining and high end cooking when I worked at the Hilton Hotel, and the chef there was, I would say, like a career hotel chef. So they did a lot of the, the uh, ACF, the American Culinary Federation. You know, uh, you know, you do the the big competitions where you do you know, the, the cold salon, the hot salon, all those things. So that was really like my first entry into the fine dining world. Now I went for the money. So I spent almost six years at this Irish pub company. By the time I finished there, I was like front of the house. But the cool thing was I didn't notice at the time because I thought I was just wasting my time. I needed to, you know, go to New York and pursue the, the restaurants. But Looking back, I'm actually thankful for that time because it was with a corporation, small corporation in the Pacific Northwest, and they were really, really strong when it comes to numbers, inventory, food costs, labor costs, scheduling, all of these skills that at the time, I didn't really put a lot of substance into, but looking back, it was huge because What happens so often as chefs grow from a cook to a sous chef to a chef's cuisine and eventually to an executive chef position is that we don't have any basis when it comes to actually running a business. So in hindsight, looking back, I got all that. So when I was a chef, when I became a chef, when I had the opportunity to do that, I was ready and I had that business sense that never left me. So after that, it was 2005 almost. I said, you know what? Enough of this. I need to get serious. So I had a friend in Seattle who had went to the school I I went to down in Portland, and then he went to the CIA, and he was working at the high end fine dining French restaurant in Seattle. Well, that piqued my interest. I looked it up. I was like, you know what? If I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So I applied, got the position, or you know, at the school, uh, and packed up my Azusa rodeo and drove across country and just kind of left the Pacific Northwest behind and been out here ever since. Wow.
1: Very cool. Um, And then was it through the CIA that you got connected with to restaurants in New York city? Like how did you, um, like, particularly I'm thinking of Teresi, which I remember, I mean, I've dined at they're the major food group now a bunch of their restaurants but i did um have a couple meals at teresi italian mm-hmm. specialties and it's a very special restaurant that i know you were a part of yeah
2: so at the, at the cia you know you have to find your externship within the first what like i think year you have to go and go out they send you out there to the real world get some experience before you come back and finish up so i was fortunate enough you know you flip through these old books that now i'm sure it's all on computers. But at the time you had to grab a binder and it had different restaurants listed and, you know, and I didn't know that that was a big reason why I didn't go directly to New York City. I didn't have, first you didn't have websites, you have like eater.com where you can find the best restaurants in the in each city or the best places to work. You didn't have those type of uh, options when finding where you want to go. So I went to the is Institute hoping that that would, you know, pushed me in the right direction. I knew I wanted to go to New York city uh, without a doubt. I knew that before I even got there. So I did an internship at Oceana when, uh, chef Neil Gallagher was there. And that was a restaurant that maybe a lot of people are like, I don't remember that restaurant. I mean, Oceana is still around, but at the, I
1: remember but at the time it. <laughs> is it
2: 53rd between, was that between park and, and Madison? No. Anyways. Um, uh,
1: well, now, now it's over on Sixth right, Avenue right. and like Fifty Fourth, or like yeah, or a little more south. Yeah, so that, at but, the time though, yeah, it did
2: move. It was Rick Mooney had just left. Neil Gallagher had just uh, finished up a couple of years at Danielle. It was him and three of his Danielle buddies came over. I mean, it was an incredible kitchen. It was high stress, high pressure, never any bullshit taken. A lot of bullshit given by the chef, but you know, you had to take it. And I learned a lot there for sure. That was like my first foray. And while that he didn't last that long at that restaurant, I think he's now the chef of celebrity cruise lines, uh, which kind of makes me chuckle a little bit. And nonetheless, it was an incredible restaurant to learn from to get my feet wet. Yeah. And from there, I just went to, um, after that, I worked for Laurent Torendel at BLT Fish, and then I worked at uh, a short-lived restaurant on the Upper East Side called Jovia, which is actually really interesting because there's quite a few chefs came out of that little kitchen. Uh, they're still doing really well. And then we, let's see, what else did I do after that? Oh, I went to Del Posto. So Del Posto oh, had just opened. that. <laughs> right, so Del Posto had just opened, and... It just happened that Mario Carbone's girlfriend was a uh, front of the house manager at Jovia. Well, the chef there, Josh Tichelis, who really didn't have a lot of reasons to be cooking Italian, but they were trying to shove a round uh, peg through a square hole and it didn't really work out. The restaurant, it was pretty, uh, it only lasted maybe a couple of years. Frank Bruni gave it one star and, uh, It was a a bit of a mess, but nonetheless, you know, I met Mario there because he would come in and help us figure out pasta program. And at that time, he was a sous chef for Mark Ladner at Del Posto. So after the one-star review, I was like, all right, I got to get out of here. It's a mess. It's chaos, super stressful environment. And I asked Mario to, you know, see if I could get a spot there. So I did, and that's where, you know, after working in three, one, two, three, I guess three French kitchens or French style kitchens at that point, screaming, yelling, chaos, nonsense, you know, all all the, all everything you hear about bad kitchens, toxic environments, all that. And then I entered Del Posto. I remember the first day I went in there to stage. Mark Ladner was at the pass. And he had a little salad spinner he's just gently pressing it. And I got there a little early before most people were there. I said, Hey chef, I'm Eli. I'm here to stage today. And he just looked at me and he kind of pushes up his glasses. He goes, the glasses? Is. And he goes, Hey, all right, cool. Welcome. I was like, Hey, all right, this is different. You know what I mean? Like this is very different than yeah, this no is a way. different vibe than, than yeah. I've been used to. And, you know, working with Mario Carbone, he was my sous chef. I was his line cook. And ever since then we kept, you know, we're really tight. And when Mario left Del Posto to kind of, he did this airport thing for a while and we stayed in touch. And then Rich Teresi, the other part of a major food group, uh, while they were designing Teresi and I was always, you know, down with them when they were kind of putting it together. We were all buddies at that point. And so, you know, I'd come down, they'd show me the shop, whatever was going on and then Rich, I was actually the chef de cuisine at La Fonda del Sol, which is in Grand Central Terminal. And during that time, Rich didn't have a job, but he was working on Teresi. So Rich actually worked for me for probably about six months. Uh, for and you know I say he worked for me like we were buddies. So it was, you know he was just in the kitchen, kind of filling a hole uh, while they built up Terisi. So once chorizo Came about, I was actually at Casa Lever at that point. I was one of uh, four chefs in the kitchen, three Italian chefs and me. And we all had the title of chef. It was like co-chefs, right? It was it, was, it, was, it was chaos. It was absolute chaos. But I finished <laughs> up my year there. I got I got a lot out of that. I vowed never to work in Midtown again. Uh, I just felt like it's a soulless place to work. Um, and nonetheless, I... Uh, you know, I was constantly in touch with Rich and Mario. So when uh, they got a four star review in New York magazine by Robin, Robin, and
0: yeah.
2: immediately they blew up overnight. Up to that point, they were really struggling to even like get people in the door. I remember Rich talking about, you know, he'd be sitting on the steps and somebody would come in like, Hey, can I get a, you know, uh, a sandwich? And he's like, Damn it! It's dinner time. We don't do sandwiches. Dinner time, you know. And the and the concept was kind of unique in the sense that it was a deli, like old school Italian deli during the day, and then at nighttime it was this five course prefix menu. And yeah,
1: and it was tight too. The oh space. yeah, it was very small.
2: It, I mean, the entire space, including the downstairs kitchen, was 900 square feet.
1: Yeah, I remember, I think you had, I think to get to the bathroom might have been down those stairs by yeah, the kitchen. You were, it, I was it was all right like, there. It so cool.
2: it was really tight. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there was no space for anyone. <laughs> Tables were basically touching each other, but it was cool because it was unique. It was different. And it was yeah. the first time, Very you cool. know, Richard Mario's whole point was they're going to make American Italian food proper. So like no ingredients from Italy everything was sourced locally or you know within the within the states olive oil tomato sauce like everything that was that we used was not imported because they really wanted to dive deep into italian american cuisine and what that meant to them so their perspective you know when it came to the deli they wanted to like resurrect this old sort of failing model of a delicatessen in new york and it's funny because when I first came to New York, I had a vision that would be Italian delis on every corner where I could go in, and I get like a fresh, you know, um, sandwich made. And when I got to New York, I realized that that's not the case. It's mostly bodegas. They're all just, you know, serving a, a sandwich to you on stale bread with boar's head. And so. Oh,
1: some bodegas, some bodegas got I, it right.
2: Listen, I'm, I'm generalizing here. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but I was disappointed because I love sandwiches. Sandwiches would always be my thing. I grew yeah. up eating sandwiches, like for breakfast. My mom would I'd literally have a tuna fish sandwich on the table waiting for me, and I would wake up in the morning. Uh, I don't oh, know okay. why. It kind of gross people out. But so Rich and Mario, they blew up, and they said, Eli, can you come help us? We want to expand to Parm next door. And Mario was going to handle that expansion. So I said, listen, guys. I'd love to, but you know, I, I'm going to be a third wheel here, right? And I wanted to make sure that you know I was setting myself up. At that point, I was making a good salary, and wanted to make sure that my family was all set up. So we agreed. I took a I think I took a twenty thousand dollars a year pay cut early on, but the agreement was that after they got Parm open and Carbone open because they already had a vision for Carbone, I was going to get a restaurant within the company. So,
1: Oh, yeah, interesting.
2: I was actually written into the original ownership papers of Carbone. Silly me, not knowing, <laughs> not knowing uh, what I know now I should have stayed. But regardless, <laughs> you know, we had an incredible time there. Teresi was such, it was this lightning in a bottle moment. And what we did there, we just pushed each other really hard. Like we were meeting at Rich's apartment in the morning at like 9 a.m. after you know closed the restaurant down, you know, three to four days a week, just going through cookbooks, going through old menus, going to the uh, library, uh, the New York library, and go to their rare, rare book section and taking menus from the early 1900s um, and, you know, really diving deep and figuring out, okay, what does carbone look like, right? So after we knew Carbonas happening and you know, I remember walking into Rocco's the first day we got the keys. It used to be Rocco's before that. And it was literally like the place ceased operations and everybody just walked out the door. There were ladles sitting in tomato sauce. There was, um, there was I the espresso machine. Like there was somebody that just made espresso. Like it was crazy. It was bizarre, yeah. but nonetheless, Teresa was this lightning in a bottle moment and, um, when we started thinking about Carbone and I started thinking more about what I wanted to do, what was right for me. Yeah. I realized that I just, I'm not Italian American. I don't fit into this role. I would love to do it and like wait for the next restaurant for, you know, which would be a restaurant that I would have within major food group, but I just didn't feel right. I didn't want, I need Richard Mario, need to do their thing. And I felt it was time for me to do my thing.
1: So, is this when Ellen comes into the story?
2: Yeah, it's, it's funny because I <laughs> I reached out to Alfred Ehrlich, you know, the kitchen maestro. He helped me get a job at another place. Um, and he called me up one day. I was at Teresa's in the kitchen. So I went outside and took the call. He's like, hey, have you ever thought about going to Philadelphia? I was like, no, no, no. I'd never been to Philadelphia. I'd been in New York for almost 10 years at that point. I'd never been to Philadelphia. I hadn't really thought about it to be honest. Yeah. And he's like, well, listen, there's this lady down there. She's looking for a chef. Would you mind taking her call? I was like, okay, sure. Why not? So I talked to her, you know, immediately I felt we hit it off. She says this all the time. She says, I called Eli to interview him and I ended up interviewing her because, you know, I think any relationship between a chef and a potentially a future partner because I was very clear that I was looking to partner with somebody. And that was really the only yeah. thing that's going to get me to maybe leave New York city because I felt I was ready to, you know, cook my food one way or the other, uh, whether it's in New York or somewhere else. And I felt like I had a viewpoint or point of view, I should say, uh, when it came to my style of food and all that. So I said, sure. So I ended up going down to Philly to talk with her and at that time, there was this sort of New York migration happening down to New, uh, Philadelphia from some other chefs. P- Peter Serpico had just left Momofuku Co., and he was yeah. going down to um, open up Serpico with Steven Starr down here. Uh, Greg Vernick, who was kind of higher up in the jean George. group. Um, Group. He was, at that point, he was going around the world opening restaurants for them. He had just moved down here. And then Michael Solomonoff, while well, he was a New York chef per se, but his, his sort of star was rising. So there was this sort of upswelling of culinary talent happening in Philadelphia. And people still look back at that time, they call it sort of the renaissance of the, you know, maybe the second or third renaissance, but of Philadelphia yeah. dining scene. So that's where how I got in contact with Ellen and then subsequently ended up moving down to Philadelphia about four or five months later.
1: Amazing. And for people who don't know, we're talking about Ellen Yen, who uh, actually she got the outstanding restaurant tour award from James Beard awards this year, uh, which is amazing. And she's amazing. And she was on my show episode 292. Anyone wants to go back and hear more about her story. Um, And she's, she's just so Awesome. Um, so, and during this, so you you partner with you you come on board with Ellen, and she's you have Fork, you have High Street on Market, um, you expand to New York. I mean, and you you get tons of you have a. I mean, I I talked about some of the accolades you received during this time, and it's like very impressive. Um, all the attention you got. So I feel like you found the right partner.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know what Ellen and I agreed on is that, well, first of all, our work ethics are very similar. She was an extremely hard worker; she still is. She's very resilient in the face of adversity. And for me, going into it, we didn't become partners right away. We wanted to sort of work through it and see what, see how we felt about it. So, two things really attracted me to Fork. One, it was 15 years old. She wanted to give it a facelift, get freshened it up, so we worked together on the design through that process as I was sort of getting my things in order to move down to Philadelphia. So we updated the dining room, did some small renovations to the kitchen with the with the anticipation that after about me being there six months, we would renovate the entire kitchen, update it. It was you know it's fifteen years old, it's pretty beat up so I came down. We relaunched Fork basically on his fifteenth birthday, and you know now it's been eleven years. So it's twenty six years old now. And what what I did that really that we both loved, and the idea was, I took the same philosophy that we were using at Teresi with Rich and Mario being Italian American kids and growing up in Mm -hmm. new york but they weren't cooking italian american food what they were doing they were cooking new york food and nobody had ever cooked new york food right nobody knew what that was they're like wait but it looks like italian food and it kind of tastes like italian food but now i'm tasting a little szechuan in there because it's a chinatown dish or making you know jamaican beef patty cavatelli uh you know with uh goat's cheese goat's cheese on it you know like or making, you know, gnocchi inspired by, you know, Coach Farms, or, you know, just you name it. Every dish had a reason, and every dish had a story. So, what I did, and this sort of came about as I was sort of talking to Ellen, was apply that same idea, but to Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, the region around here, South Jersey and all that. So, I currently live at Penn's Landing in Philadelphia on the Delaware River. I look at it outside my window. Both of my grandparents' side, you know, just going back to the 1700s and the 1600s in the Pennsylvania Dutch when they started moving out to, uh, from, you know, Germany, that sort of area of Europe, escaping religious persecution. And so they came to the United States. Both sides of my family entered. Pennsylvania at Penn's Landing. so it's kind of incredible like you know full circle. so yeah. what this allowed me to do and you know my father was born in Buffalo New York but my both my grandparents they moved together out of Buffalo or out of um, Pennsylvania so I wasn't that far removed. I had never been to Pennsylvania I didn't spend any time here but I knew my family was rooted here. So what this did it sort of allowed me to explore that a little bit. Explore what Philadelphia cuisine is. You know, we have, you know, amazing farmland in Lancaster. Some of the best produce that goes to um, New York is right across the river in South Jersey. Things of Phillips Farms, you know, those type of, you know, really established farms. They're literally 10 miles outside of Philadelphia. Um, You know, a a lot of those farms supply New York City with food. So if you take away, if you erase the lines on a map, Philadelphia is actually, or excuse me, Lancaster is actually closer to New York City than the Hudson Valley. So for me, I'm like, okay, well, there's a lot of stories to be told. You know, whether it's the story and the lore of the Jersey Devil in the Pine Barrens, or you know, the what the Mennonites do, or what the Amish, you know, traditional Amish looks like so there are all these stories not to mention just philadelphia as a whole like this the you know new york has history but philadelphia has incredible history as well so there are all these storylines i was able to kind of pull and create narratives around the food because i always say if you can create a narrative around a dish around your cuisine if that dish tells a story and that customer gets it it's like the coin dropping so to speak they're like oh i get it like in that moment you've got them Like they will never forget that dish. They will always remember that dish because a lot of the food that I remember, and a lot of the food that you probably remember are ones that have something attached to it just beyond being a beautiful, tasty plate of food.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. And that, I mean that approach is 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 smart, and I yeah, telling stories through the food and also serving delicious food, which I have had the privilege of having uh, your cooking and enjoying. And um, you guys set to you you opened in New York um, High Street on Hudson, uh, which um, was around for I think a couple years. Um, it mm-hmm. was I think uh, uh, you know. Uh, It was very exciting having you guys here. I think it's hard in New York to, you know, or anywhere to have restaurants. But um, you had a a major, you know, change of your life happen with this um, train accident. And I, I mean, from I remember being here when it happened and, you know, it's described as one of the worst train crashes in American yeah. history. Um, I don't know how much you want to, you want to talk about it. Or oh, how it, 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 it okay. Um, well, how did, I mean, what was it? I to say like, what was it like, like, I mean, as a chef going through mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, it changed your life right. where you, you know, um, had to uh, redirect um, yourself Absolutely. and your what you're doing. So you have found your way with with your podcast and the things you're doing. But um talk a bit about that right. and that so change.
2: At the time I had moved down to well, we first moved down to Philly, but my wife's job did not transfer down to Philadelphia like it was supposed to. And for a long time she was a breadwinner in the family. Like she was a, she she's the only reason why I was able to live in New York or close proximity to Manhattan or in Manhattan for so long. So I ended up just saying, okay, you know what? Let's move back to New York. I will commute down to Philadelphia. We had this other restaurant, High Street on Hudson, that was in development. We already signed the lease on it. We signed the lease in March. So I started spending less time in Philadelphia, but I would commute down. I'd spend a couple days down here at a time. I was probably taking Amtrak about three to four times a week, depending on what's going on in Philadelphia. So, and you know, a lot of times that was where I did my, my uh, my office work, so to speak. I got a lot done on the train, as most people do. And so it was a, the date was, uh, I'll never forget it, May 12th, 2015. And I actually had come down to Philadelphia, uh, it was a Tuesday. Typically I wasn't coming down here on Tuesdays, but this group of women who had won this really nice award down here in Philadelphia, like, you know, 40 under 40 Movers and Shakers type award, had asked me to come down and cook a luncheon for them. We weren't open for lunch at Fork, but I was like, okay, sure, I'll come down. So I did it. I stayed I stayed through dinner service, and that night, it wasn't that busy. It was a Tuesday, and usually I took the 11 p.m. train home because I would leave the restaurant around 1030 and head up to 30th Street Station to jump back on the train. Well, that night, I also had a CrossFit Uh, I was starting CrossFit the next morning at 7 a.m., so I wanted to get home, get get a good night's sleep. So I jumped on the earlier train and headed out. And about nine minutes into the ride, the engineer, thinking he was on a straight stretch heading to New York, he just lost his bearings, so to speak, accelerated to 108 miles an hour. Unfortunately for all of us, he was accelerating 108 miles an hour into a 50-mile-an-hour corner. And the train and I think five of the cars derailed. I was on the second car back from the engine. The first car hit a a concrete barrier and was like shredded like a soda can. Uh, That was where eight people died and really bad injuries happened. I was right behind that car. I was in the first seat right behind that car. And when the train fell off the track to the right, Tipped over, you gotta remember you're going 100 miles an hour here, so you're flying.
1: Yeah,
2: and that sort of threw me in the air, and the way my body turned in the air, I came down. I think the train was stopping, but I was still going 100 miles an hour, and it smashed by the back of my neck right against the luggage rack that was on the opposite side of me. So, immediately I fall down. I try to get up, and nothing's moving. At that point. Between the crash, my neck—I felt it was like electricity going through my body. It almost sound—I could hear the sound. Uh, I could hear the injury happening. It was—it was almost like um, if somebody you know turned a guitar up on high, and just just went hard on the on the chords all at once. Yeah. It's kind of that noise. So I fell down. Every a bunch of stuff was on top of me. You know, it took a while to get rescued. It was. It was you know, it's pretty crazy to think that uh, I survived that. And thankfully I was rescued in time where my body didn't shut down and I didn't really have any other injuries, but you only have so many so much time after an injury like that because you can lose your ability to breathe. Your diaphragm gets immediately wiped out. And it was to the point where I was yelling for help, but nobody could barely hear me because I was barely making a sound. So to say that it was scary is understatement, but, Looking back at it, you know, the years of physical rehab, the years of mental rehab, I think the mental rehab is probably more important than the physical, but it really took me a couple of years to get over it. I really lost my purpose. I lost my reason for being because I poured so much of it into, you know, our company. And I was also really pissed off. I was really angry that it happened. You know, the... The twenty plus years I poured into my career, and you know I just won food with my best of chef. You saw, you talked about the Bon Appetit thing. We're going to New York to open the restaurant. We just signed the lease two and a half months before that. So all of this momentum, all of this positive energy immediately ceased. And here I was, you know, at a hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, away from my family, away from my people, having to figure out how to live again. So it was it was a tough, tough spot to be in for sure.
1: Yes. Thank you for sharing with us. I mean I I can only imagine what it was like and um yeah, I'm so glad that your the work you've done over the past few years um I mean saying, you know, that the mental work how important it, it was or is um as well as the physical has gotten you to um a much better place and a wonderful place where you're now hosting this Awesome podcast, the Chef Radio podcast, which I was a guest on. I think our episode's going to come yes, up soon, come out soon, right?
2: Yeah. Yep.
1: <laughs> um, very honored to be on, especially since the the title of your show is the Chef Radio podcast. So you yes, made an exception I only had one other
2: author on the podcast, Andrew <laughs> Friedman.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. With my Chef Wise book, I had a little a little um, uh, in that way, Absolutely. I guess. Great. But um, talk a bit about. Um, like, why did you decide to do a podcast? And um, you've, I mean, you've, it's an awesome, awesome podcast. I've listened many times. You interview wonderful chefs um, in Philly and and beyond. Um, So what, what inspired the podcast?
2: Well, in 2017, about two years after the accident, we were still living in New York, but my former wife and I decided to both move to Philadelphia area and raise our son there. So when I came back to Philadelphia, I was really stoked. I I, I really felt that, okay, I'm going to get back in the restaurants with the chefs that many of them I hired. Um, I trained some of them, you know, but two years had passed. They didn't really have chef in the kitchen anymore. So some of those hopes to kind of get back into it were dampened because I realized that these chefs have become not only really great in their own right, but they're great leaders, they're creatives, like they're doing their thing. And of course I'm there to champion them on, give them some direction, some feedback, so to speak. But I wasn't, it wasn't filling the void that was, was gone. And to be honest, that void will never, ever be filled. It just simply won't. I've had to wrestle with that, and grapple with that idea for years. So in 2020, well, it's really 2019. A guy I know was, he had opened a podcast recording studio in Philadelphia. I toured his facility. It was like a co-working space slash studio. And I left there, and I, you know, a couple of days later, I was like, I sent him a message. I was like, what do you think about doing a chef-driven podcast, whatever that looks like? And he's like, that sounds great. So, you know, I called up some buddies down here in Philadelphia and, you know, they they kindly got in the studio with me. We recorded three or four pilot episodes over the early part of 2020. And then we all know what happened there. Uh, our actually launch date was uh, March 15th. We didn't really know how that was going to sit being that the world was shutting down. So we decided, okay, let's do it on April 1st. We still weren't sure if like, it's too soon type thing, right? Is it um, because a lot of these were recorded before the pandemic even hit. So what I found was immediately, because these were mostly Philadelphia chefs at the time, I now I've broadened out a lot of chefs, national, international, and all that. However, at the time, we found that it was a really great response because kind of had a captured audience at that point, because most chefs were at home doing diddly squat. And if, if you don't know what's going on with the other restaurants, you feel like you're in a bubble or, you know, if you're your own little bubble, but if you can listen to other chefs going through this and the, the chefs I had recorded before the pandemic, I went back and re-recorded with them to kind of give an update. And
1: smart.
2: yeah, it was great because there was this, really great response locally to it and people were really appreciative of hearing these stories of what other chefs are doing right now to get through and you know whatever government help is coming and how they're going to use that government help and all that and you know so it really worked out in that way and slowly but surely you know I started to feel like okay this is this is resembling something that can kind of fill a void, so to speak, because my goal as a chef was to be relevant in the industry that I loved. I didn't need to be famous. I didn't, you know, I wasn't looking to, you know, be the next Bobby Flay or something. However, I did want to be respected by my peers. I worked for so many great chefs. I worked with so many great future chefs. And I really wanted to be doing something that brought something to our industry because I really truly love our industry and I've been doing it since I was 14 years old so once I started doing this okay I was like okay well I'm I am having an impact I am having an impact on the younger generation mentorship was always really important to me as a chef and I always loved coaching right I grew up playing sports so Being in a a restaurant kitchen with chefs yelling at you to motivate you, and whether they're yelling at you angrily or yelling at you in a good way, I was motivated by that. And so, you know, this was in some ways allowing me to stay relevant in the industry that I could no longer, you know, do in my normal capacity.
1: Yeah, and you're you're really, I mean, you're you're really good at it, and you. you have the the know-how because of cooking and your you know uh your all your experience so you know i mean talking to other chefs you you, you know what to ask them sure. um and also i was thinking i mean with um with my podcast i felt during the pandemic um, I thought it brought a different importance in a sense to my podcast in the same Absolutely, way as right? you were saying of sharing stories. Yeah. Because it was like we were isolated and people, it was a way to communicate and share stories with other people while we were going through this crazy period. So uh, yeah, your timing turned out to be really, really great launching, you know, and, what April twenty twenty, yeah. um, mm-hmm. I think, and um, and so we're we're gonna have to take a break. But before we do, um, you now have another podcast that you co-host called Delicious City Philly, and this ties into my question from my last guest. I on episode three seventy one, I had on Elizabeth Blau. She's a Las Vegas based restaurateur, a co-founder and CEO, and restaurant. Of her restaurant development company blau and associates and she has restaurants in las vegas and vancouver and also in dallas um and so she wants to know where is the philly restaurant scene right now what's exciting happening and i have a feeling this is or this is what you mm-hmm. talk about on your
2: other podcast yep, sure correct? absolutely absolutely <laughs> you want to do it now or after the break
1: yeah well, we can do it. We'll do it before okay, the break. Great. So tell me, tell us what, what, what are you excited about right now in the Philly restaurant? Yeah,
2: theme? So Delicious City was a second podcast that kind of spun out of, of Chef Radio because, you know, I was really focusing on chefs and restaurants, but I always had this idea of what if we do a podcast? It kind of feels like drive time radio is fun. It's exciting. It's fast moving. And we really talk about all the exciting things that are happening in Philadelphia so Philadelphia is without a doubt uh, the country's best kept secret as far as dining destination goes. This year I think people people's ears perked up after the James Beard Awards. Uh, you know, they won uh, multiple chefs and of course my my partner won this year as restaurant of the year, Set Friday Saturday, Sunday great restaurant here won best restaurant. Yeah. You know, so there's was, there was a lot of
1: Billy did incredible. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. And it has, it has <laughs> yeah. been, but I think it's been, it's been, you know, each year we always are winning something when it comes to the beard awards. If you put a lot of, you know, a lot of weight into that, some people might not care, which that's cool too. But you know, this, this new uh, idea of delicious city really came about as just kind of another way to compliment what I was doing with chef radio. So to answer the question, what's happening in Philly, where to go, and all that. I would say there's way too much going on uh, to answer that uh, in a short sentence. But, you know, I would say a great place right now is if you're coming here, you got to check out Kaliya, which is uh, Nook Suntarnanan's Thai place. Uh, It's like a temple of true Thai cooking, not Americanized, not dumbed down for the American palate. She cooks incredibly authentic. She grew up going to the food stall in Thailand with her mother. Uh, she just happened to meet a man as she was a flight attendant on Thai Airways. He's a professor at Wharton. And so she moved to Philadelphia, started a tiny little restaurant, uh, just a little BYOB. And from there, she kind of blew up. And now she's you know this 120 seat restaurant that is beautiful and producing. So the most incredible flavors out there, but there's lots, lots, yeah, there's lots I've to be. Been. Up. It's it's oh, wonderful. Been. Okay, great.
1: I, and I went to the original spot oh, too. Oh, yeah, Okay. Um, both. Yeah, yeah. Very different, but both exceptional.
2: Well, let me ask you a question then, Sherry. You know Philadelphia's food scene pretty well. What would you? How would you describe it right now? The state of it.
1: It's on fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, I've been there. A few, I've been back and forth to Philly a few times this year, um, doing things mostly for my book and with Sisterly Love Collective, which Ellen is a a co-founder right. of. And um, and I've been eating my way through your your city. And um, I went to Friday, Saturday, Sunday last time. I went to her place. Oh, right. Her
2: place, of course, um, yeah.
1: Michael Solomonoff and, and Omar Tate with honey honey. Cycle provisions um, yep. and I mean, yeah, there's there's you have a lot of amazing restaurants there. So I look forward to continuing to come.
2: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think Philly prides itself on being a little bit gritty, a little bit under the radar, hardworking, resilient type of city, and which I always really was attracted to. And there's not a lot of fluff, so to speak. Um, you know, it might not be a you know, $6 million temple of gastronomy that you might find in New York City. However, the impact of the food that a lot of chefs are cooking down here is incredible. And I always tell people, yeah. especially in New York or D.C., just come down for a weekend. Like, is you'll be able to eat around town, I guarantee you, whether it's like the old school Italian that you don't really see in New York unless you go up to like Arthur Avenue, or... You know, new, yeah. more modern cooking styles that are are really fantastic in their own way.
1: Yeah, no, it's incredible, and I, I mean, we have to take a break, but I mean, Vetri and and Fiorella and your restaurants, High Street, the new sure. High Street on yep. Market, and um, and um, a kitchen, all fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah,
2: a bar. I mean, we have incredible bartenders there doing some yeah. really really yeah. fun and
1: really good stuff, uh, offbeat stuff. Okay. So, uh, all right. So let's take a little break and we'll come back. We're going to play my speed round. We'll talk some industry news and my solar dining experience in the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network.
0: Hi, listeners. We wanted to let you know that Heritage Radio Network's Julia Child Fellowship application is now open. The fellowship offers an enriching experience for aspiring food writers and journalists who share our passion for food systems change. The fellowship is a great way to progress in the field of food journalism and digital media and will start in early January, 2024. This fellowship will provide participants with hands-on experience, mentorship, and access to an extensive network of industry professionals. The application deadline is November 27, 2023. Check out heritageradionetwork.org and click on the Julia Child Foundation Writing Fellowship link to learn more. If you or someone you know has interest in food studies and journalism, this might be a great fit. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and check out the application today. Thank you. This episode is supported by HRN business member MarketLink. MarketLink develops technology that works for farmers, markets, and consumers. Since 2013, MarketLink has helped more than 3,000 farmers and markets accept electronic payments, including credit, debit and snap sales. MarketLink supports HRN's creative, educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place.
1: Welcome back to Own the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Eli Culp. He is a chef and the partner of High Street Hospitality Group and host of the Chef Radio Podcast and co-host of Delicious City Philly Podcast. Eli, it's time for my speedrun game. Mm,
2: I'm excited. So what
1: this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you got to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Okay.
2: Sounds good. Yeah. You ready?
1: Okay. Here we go. Eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant.
2: Out at a restaurant.
1: Indoor dining or alfresco dining.
2: In the season, if it's not too humid, let's say spring and fall, alfresco, 100%. Okay. I like
1: that. You know, that.
2: northeast summers. How about
1: – <laughs> I hear you. How about wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? You know what?
2: I'm going to say mocktail on that. While I do drink a little bit, now since my injury, my body just does not do well with alcohol. I don't know what it is but it throws it into a tizzy and it's not worth the pain sometimes. So I, I've been really loving, you know, the creative mocktail movement that we're seeing. And I think a lot of people who, you know, always felt like they had to have a drink to kind of fit in. Now they have great options and they, if they don't want to, uh, you know, get trashed.
1: 100%. There is a movement happening and it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Um, I'm, I'm a non drinker, So, um, It's it's been nice to see. Okay. How about tasting menu or a la carte?
2: Oh, I love good tasting menu, but I don't like it when (laughs) I leave feeling so full. So, and as a chef, when you go out to eat, honestly, it doesn't even matter a la carte or not. If you're a chef and you're recognized by whoever's there, typically you're going to be too stuffed by the time you leave because there's always more coming out than you order. So I'm going to say a la carte because I do like to have a choice in that matter.
1: How about small plates or large plates?
2: I love small plates, like the idea of sharing. Yep, eating a lot of different things.
1: Okay. Communal table or chef's counter?
2: Ooh, chef's counter. Yeah, for sure.
1: Tipping or all-inclusive charge? No.
2: I like all inclusive. I think our industry has to go that way. I appreciate the ones who are putting their necks out there to try to, you know, be the, be the first intrepid ones. Sometimes it doesn't work out. And, uh, but definitely I love the idea of service charge and being able to spread some of that wealth across all aspects of the restaurant.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. A few more. Fairmont brewery town Rittenhouse or Bella Vista. And there's more I could have put in this list. <laughs> uh,
2: Brewerytown's a little too early yet. Uh, Fairmount is a dead zone for restaurants. Rittenhouse is, I mean, everything's there, and then Bella Vista is a little bit more chill, relaxed. I'm going to say Bella Vista.
1: Okay, they're also. I don't know if you're there. They were. I was looking at your hoagie shop
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, menu. And, and yeah, they're, they're named after the, ta- the, the different, I guess.
2: Exactly. Each, each sandwich parts is of the named city. after different parts of the I think
1: Fishtown was on there too. Yeah. Fishtown, okay. I would
2: definitely, I, <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd probably pick Fishtown over any of those, even though it's starting to get, you know, blown up a little bit.
1: Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's good to know. Cause I don't, I kind of know Fishtown a little and, and Rittenhouse mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. most, um, and the rest I'm learning. Okay, my favorite one to ask my Philly guests is um, Gino's or Pat's? Neither. Yeah, and everyone <laughs> says that.
2: <laughs> yeah, neither. No, the only, so okay. I personally, I don't love cheesesteaks. I never have. My sandwich down here is the roast pork provolone and broccoli rum. To me, that is like the sandwich of Philadelphia that nobody knows about. at least outsiders. Um, yeah. But if you do have to yeah. have a cheesesteak, there's a couple places. It's either Angelo's who also has some of the best uh-huh. pizza here or John's roast pork. Well, you should get the roast pork there, but you should also get a cheese steak there because they do it right. It's all about the bread. Awesome. You have to get a seeded sarcone roll from Sarcone's Bakery. If it's not a sarcone seeded roll, then I'm not really that excited about it.
1: Okay. I love it. Last two are cheese plate or
2: dessert. Dessert. I have a sweet tooth. Yep. I mean, listen, I'll take a cheese course before dessert. Don't get me wrong.
1: Okay, okay. (laughs) And the last one's Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Philadelphia.
2: Oh, man. I miss New York. I do in a lot of ways. Um,
1: Well, if you moved back, would you move back to Manhattan, Brooklyn, or another borough?
2: Probably Manhattan. I like the accessibility of it. I mean, I love Philadelphia, but I do miss New York. So yeah. maybe I'll pick New York for this one. Everybody's gonna hate me for it, but you know, yeah, oh, I, I got feet in both both sides there.
1: Okay, very cool. That's the game. That was fun. Um. So yeah. So for okay. So for industry news, um, we'll just talk about one one thing that came out. It was um the Michelin Guide. Um. For 2023, for New York, Chicago, and Washington D.C. Um, it was announced last week. I actually went to the award ceremony okay. that was here down um, in the uh, I guess um, kind of Tribeca area. It's called Spring Studios, and um, it was it was a great evening. And this is the first year that they've combined these three cities in like an announcement for Michelin. And the big news of the night was that Chicago's Smith Restaurant, Did you see that? and that's S-M-Y-T-H. Yeah, it got it got three Unbelievable. stars. Unbelievable. So I was
2: so excited for John. I recently interviewed him on Chef Radio. Oh, nice. He's uh him and his wife, I think his wife is from the Philadelphia area as well. So I met them a couple times at Fork, and then of course, kind of just followed his career. That was I, I saw that. I was like, holy shit, wow, okay, good for them, absolutely. Yeah,
1: that was the big news of the night. I dined there many years ago. I think it was one of the trips. It was one of the times I was there for the James Beard Awards, and um, it was excellent, Uh, very, very happy for them. And downstairs they have this this spot called The Loyalist. That's a more casual spot, and I had a great burger there once. So they have, like, both things going on. They have a tremendous –
2: uh burger and you know they have the high end that kind of feeds yeah. the feeds the more casual restaurant and it works nicely so they have a really nice thing going on.
1: Yeah they do. I mean big congratulations to them and to everyone. I mean it was you know most the I think most people uh the restaurants maintain their stars there were the uh, the there were a bunch of new, um, or a handful of new, two Michelin stars in New York. There were a lot of Japanese restaurants and sushi restaurants, like Sushi Na's. and um, or, or, well, that was well. There actually there were only two on the the two star Michelin. And then the the one star Michelin um, in New York also there was Joji on that, and also your your guys at uh, Teresi.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Rich got his first star, which is great. I think Danielle got a second star back. Is that right?
1: Um, I think he just has maintained. I think he's just been, yeah, too. And okay. then, uh, he, and Joji is is his su- new sushi place that um, has now won, and also um, Sushi Ichimura has won. I mean, it's um, yeah, but um, Danielle okay, so he stayed is at too. Gotcha. All
2: right. Yeah, I didn't um, look too closely at it. But was, I did see the the news of Teresi and um, John Shields.
1: Yeah, it was exciting to be there. I mean, the chefs were there, and uh, most for the most part, everyone on the list um, um, was there, celebrating together. And it was cool that you know there was DC and and Chicago in the mix. I mean, I'm I was going to ask you though with Philadelphia, Michelin hasn't done Philly. Is that correct?
2: uh, Nope.
1: Okay. because I would think you yeah, Philly could have been at this this uh, ceremony. As well,
2: well. <laughs> uh, Philly's always been the the flyby state, so to speak, or you know, on the Amtrak, <laughs> um, the city you just kind of go past. I think Philadelphia yeah. has a place. I think it it's still you know it's it's a growing food scene. Some of some people might be like, what? What are you talking about? I'm just coming from you know my my time in New York and seeing you know the established food scene there. You have Chicago, of course, DC. I think we have better restaurants in DC, uh, personally. So I'm not sure why they're there before Philadelphia. I think probably just the notoriety of the city itself probably lends it to, to that. However, you know, as Michelin expands, I imagine they're going to you know bring it to Philadelphia. And I think there's some restaurants that. Yeah. They hold their own, you know. I am not sure there is three Michelin star restaurants here. There might be some twos, uh, but you know, Philadelphia. Sometimes people are going to kill me for saying this, but sometimes they they inflate their their egos a little bit too much. I think if you put it up against a different city, uh, often it might not be as impressive as they think. But with that being said, there are incredible restaurants down here that are very unique, have a unique viewpoint and are doing really great things. So, you know, if, if people are interested in the whole Michelin thing, which a lot of people just say, whatever, it's it's a bunch of uh, hot air. Uh, But if you are interested in it, you know, it matters. So, you know, I think it's uh, eventually it's going to be here.
1: Yeah. I think eventually, I mean, we'll see if maybe Michelin's listening now, maybe it will be sooner (laughs) than later, but um, I like celebrating the industry and the chefs and all sure, the. Sure. It's a hard, hard industry, as you know, um, and so I, I just um, I'm there for the party. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Let's celebrate.
2: Yes. I'll be there for the party. So,
1: yeah, exactly. So, um, well, congratulations to everyone. Um, it's it's online if you you know if you want to look up um, the just look up Michelin um, New York. Uh, DC and Chicago, and you can see the full Yeah, place the,
2: there. the Japanese restaurants are coming over to New York. You know, it's almost, they, they think of New York as being a city that they'll put even in front of Tokyo. So a lot of the chefs are, you know, they look at New York, what's going on here, and it's 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 great to see. I mean, you know, Masa did it first, and now it's, uh, it's continuing to, uh, you know, bring yeah. incredible talent uh, to New York.
1: It's, I mean, it's, we are very spoiled in New York City with the amazing sushi and omakase places mm-hmm. we have. And I I will splurge every kind of couple months. I'll go, I'll, I'll, I've done, I went to Nas many years ago. I recently went to Chimura. I went to Joji. And they're so incredible, but it's like, it's pricey. So you can't, you can't do it all right. the time. But I I do always think it's worth the splurge. So... <laughs>
2: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, it's uh, really beautiful stuff they do. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, very, very cool. So, okay, so it's time for my solo dining experience. So this week it's at Hot Salon. Here's the rundown. The location, 3355 South Las Vegas Boulevard at the Venetian Resort in Las Vegas. It's And It was in the La Palazzo Tower part of the Venetian. Uh, so... The concept. It's a celebratory restaurant um, offering creative Israeli cuisine. On their site, it says Savor the Riches of the Mediterranean land and sea. The owner and chef is Ayal Shani, who is from Jerusalem, and he's considered one of the leading figures in Israeli in the Israeli culinary scene. Why'd I go? Well, I was out in Vegas on a quick little trip. I was seeing you two at the sphere. Really, it was on this mission. And,
2: um, oh, you saw you
1: last week. But
2: yeah, Ooh, it was very amazing. Cool.
1: Very cool. <laughs> it was amazing. And I picked this spot to go to dinner before I did a pre show dinner because the Venetian is about a not even a 20 minute walk from the sphere. So, okay,
0: great.
1: Um, it was it was a wonderful evening, and I started. At, my experience was I made an, an early reservation at five thirty as soon as they opened, and I told my server that I was going to see the show, so he knew to get me in and out on time. And he was he was awesome, guided me through the menu. Um, I was at the chef's counter, which I love. It was it was it was funny being in Vegas though. There were like couples coming in and they were seating them at the chef's counter and the server or the hostess kept having to convince them that this was a good spot to sit in (laughs) because they all wanted to go to the back dining room. Uh, And I'm like, uh no, this is a great spot. So, um, and it was, it had really, you know, right there watching the chefs cook and a good energy. And, um, I had a really nice time. So what did I get? I got the Charred beetroot carpaccio, which had creme fraiche, and it said it was stormed with horseradish snow. This is the description of the menu. The, speaking of stories, this their menu tells
2: stories, I have mm-hmm. to say.
1: I think you'd appreciate it, Eli.
2: Now, is, he, is that one a major food group restaurant like they did in Miami together?
1: Or is um, it
0: separate?
1: I don't. You know, it's a good question. I know he has the one in Miami with the – I didn't – I, I'm not hundred percent okay. sure on okay. that if Major Food is a partner with it. Because he also has in New York, Tel Aviv, and um Paris. But um yeah, there are multiple locations and the New York one I'd never been to. I'd never been to any of them. So that's part of the reason why mm-hmm. I decided to go. Um but it and the other I also got So um, what else I have? I had the grouper harami, which is, it says, a story of fish in a stormy, spicy tomatoes. Um, It's, uh, they had some complimentary pizza-like bread that they gave out that also had tomatoes on it, came with a little dip. It was like a kind of like a sour cream dip. And then I just went for it. I got baklava for dessert and it was this giant, like skillet of baklava a la mode, oh wow, wow. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say giant, but be, it be like I think four people could have like shared it with me, mm-hmm. and we would have all been satisfied, but it satisfied my sweet tooth and which I have, and uh, my take was a it was a really great meal. The carpaccio was light, delicious, flavorful the the fish was cooked perfectly, it kind of. It had a, a, a tomato sauce, and it also had a white and green sauce on it. It reminded me a little of this dish, um, this snapper dish from Mexico City Contramar. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of that, but it's got like the different colors um, and sauces on top, but similar kind of presentation. And the baklava was awesome. Okay. So the ambiance, so like things in Vegas, it was it's shiny, new, like looks you know beautiful this restaurant opened a few months ago so um it was it was a beautiful spot chandeliers back dining room high ceilings i mean you're right there in the casino um outside but inside it felt you know uh, just felt like a fun, kind of like a high energy restaurant the earlier seating is is not as lively as the later seating, which it gets, it does, it's known to be more of a party. Isn't
2: there a whole Um, thing like, after the, or towards the end of the night, it just turns into like a dance party?
1: I believe so. That is, because they tell you even when you're making a reservation that it's like, I think, yeah, the 5.30 seating is more mellow, but if you reserve it like after eight, nine, it does, it turns into a, like, people dancing at their tables type scene. So it's fun. Um, And the food's great. Um, I'd say it's perfect for dinner with friends. Interesting tidbit. Um, I mentioned all the other Hasselon locations. I'll also just say that um, Formula One is taking place in Vegas this coming weekend. And so traffic was a bit of a nightmare in Vegas on the strip because they have all these brand stands going up. But it's exciting for Vegas. And we mentioned on my last show how the world's 50 best is going to be in Vegas um, in June next year, too. So Vegas is happening. Um, Personal fun fact. So some other meals I had when I was there off the strip, I went to Honey Salt, which is Elizabeth Lowe's restaurant, one of her restaurants. I also went back to Lotus of Siam, which I'd been to once before, which is a really great Thai restaurant. Um, at the Wynn and Encore Hotel, I stopped by Delilah, which is a swanky supper club. Um, I just had a non-alcoholic drink there and a little snack. And then I went to Casa Playa, also at the hotel, which has an uh, awesome Mexican fare by Sarah Thomas. And uh, Christopher Lee does the... is. F- in charge of food and beverage the culinary program there i missed him this trip i also missed jen yi who i learned was there who does pastry so Lee, he was next he was time by, i will find that
2: cdc at also,
1: i didn't see it but vegas oh my god there's just so many so many mm-hmm. awesome restaurants and choices and i was only there for two days <laughs> well, next time next in, time I try, and I also have to say, I was—I happened to be by a Barnes and Noble, and I popped in, and this is off the strip, and they had my book, and that's like—that's hey, right. just so cool to me. All right, very
2: cool.
1: <laughs> so I signed it. I signed the copy they had. Um, okay, so the cost of my meal was one hundred and four dollars. And they added in a 20% service charge and tax, and that's not included in the 104, but they added it in kind of like they do in mm-hmm. Miami. Um, so uh, would I go back? Yes. Their website is HasalanVegas.com and Instagram at Hasalan underscore Vegas. Um, there you go. Have you ever been to a Hasalan? Um, uh, nope. Hmm. Yeah. They're known, it is known more as a party type restaurant, but I think the food the food is good. Um And I enjoyed it. Cool. So we, uh, yeah, good for them, uh, for their expansion. Uh, Anyways, um, okay, so it's time for the final question. So my next guests are JP and Elia Park. They are the husband and wife team and the owners of Nan Hospitality, which includes Two Michelin star, Auto Mix, which also has received three stars in the New York Times. And it was number eight on the world's 50 best restaurants list this year, which is the highest ranking of a U.S. restaurant on that list. Uh, They also have Auto Naro, and and Soul Salon, which are all Mm -hmm. focused on Korean Mm -hmm. cuisine. They're all in New York City. Um, JP has a new book out, along with Jung Yoon Choi, Called the Korean Cookbook, and it's by Fiden. And um, he's also in my book by Fiden, Chef Wise. So I'm super excited to um, have them on the show. And um, I wanna see Eli if you can ask them a question.
2: Okay, interesting. Uh, they also won James Beard New York, right? This year? Best Chef. Yes. Yeah, dude.
1: <laughs> Sorry, they've had so yeah, many accolades. I've I missed mean, that I haven't one.
2: <laughs> been there, but I tell you what, people tell me. That, that is the best fine dining experience that you can get. So I also heard people are using a Korean synonym or you know, to their name, synonym? Now what's the word, a different name? It's not synonym, what's the word I'm talking about? Um, a different, uh, basically a fake a fake sure. name, um, but uh, oh, okay. to get reservations because it seems like they uh, that works. So I don't know if that's true oh, or not.
1: Oh, interesting. I just heard that. Is that, that could be the question. <laughs>
2: People yeah. do that. <laughs> <laughs> that. could be the question. Uh, so you can ask that question. Uh, and also, uh, how about this question? As they grow, what are the top three most important aspects in their company when it comes to the culture that they are building?
1: Awesome. That's great. I will find out.
2: Um, or maybe just the top. Yeah. We'll do that... all three.
1: Okay. We'll see how much time we have. <laughs> But um, thank you. That's the show. Thank you so much for joining me. I am um, I feel really lucky that I've I've gotten to know you a little better and that I just know you in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I'm just... I, I'm a bit in awe of you and your positive energy and where you've taken your career and what you bring to the world and to our hospitality industry. Um, I just... Uh, I admire you and I just wanna say um, congratulations on on everything you've accomplished. Well, thank you. I and thank that. you again for ha- yeah, no, I mean it and thank you again for having me on your show and I look forward to coming back to Philly and maybe we could, you know. We meet
2: always up t- t- tend to run into each, each other one way or the other. So
1: Yeah. Well it was the beard awards mm-hmm. and being in Philly and yeah, it's um it's it's and being at your party for for your um, for the high street relocation. And so congratulations on everything you've 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 accomplished. Well, thank you. And I wish you the
2: best. Appreciate that. Same to you. Keep going. You're doing great things.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All
2: right.
1: So my guest today has been Eli Cole. He's chef and partner of High Street Hospitality Group and the host of the Chef Radio Podcast and co-host co-host of Delicious City Philly Podcast. His websites are chefradiopodcast.com and you can also go to highstreetonmarket.com and you can follow him at Eli Kulp, that's E-L-I-K-U-L-P, and at Chef Radio Podcast at Delicious City Podcast and at High Street Hospitality. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are bayerpublicrelations.com, sherrybayer.com, and allintheindustry.com all of our shows are archived at Heritage radio network.org we are also an iTunes stitcher and Spotify check out my new book which is out chef wise life lessons from leading chefs around it's a the great world by Biden. I, I,
2: I will say that it is a fantastic book'
1: You're the best. thank you it's available wherever books are sold right. um, and I appreciate coming coming from you coming from a chef that means a lot to me so thank you, you. Get it. um and thank you to my engineer today Armin um I your host and producer and author, Sherry Bayer. So next week is Thanksgiving. Um, We're going to be off and I have a little travel coming up. So um, I have some shows um, after Thanksgiving that are going to be my on the road shows covering some of these events and conferences I've been going to like food on the edge in Ireland and the LA chef conference. So that's coming up um, after Thanksgiving. And then after the new year, will be my show with JP and Elia. I can't believe it's almost 2024, but it is. So stay tuned for that. Um, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Eat a lot of turkey and a lot of delicious sides. And um, as always, thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network